Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. Your host, Dr. Joe Tata, leads the conversation around the way pain is treated in the U.S. and around the world with experts from the fields of medicine, physical therapy, nutrition, personal development, exercise, psychology, and more. Each week, you can listen to receive free information about ways to treat and reverse chronic persistent pain. Now, here is Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Joe Tata. This week on the podcast, we are talking about the neuroscience that supports yoga therapy and mindfulness for the relief of chronic pain. Joining me is Dr. Sarah Lazar, who is an associate researcher in the psychiatry department at Massachusetts General Hospital, as well as an assistant professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School. The focus of her research is to explore the neural mechanisms underlying the beneficial effects of yoga and meditation, both in the clinical setting as well as in healthy individuals. She is a contributing author to meditation and psychotherapy, and her research has been covered by numerous news outlets, including the New York Times, USA Today, CNN, as well as WebMD. On today's podcast, you will learn how mindfulness changes the structure of the brain, how mindfulness as well as yoga can help with decreasing pain catastrophizing, as well as pain interference, how many minutes of meditation you need each day to reap a benefit, does the scientific evidence support that mindfulness can truly alleviate chronic pain, which is better for pain, yoga or mindfulness, or is a combination best, and finally, how mindfulness can help slow the aging process. This is a great episode if you are a practitioner and you're interested in the neuroscience behind mindfulness or if you're someone with chronic pain and you'd like to possibly explore mindfulness or yoga for your own therapy. If you're a practitioner and you're interested in this topic, make sure you hop over to the Integrative Pain Science Institute. That's integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. There's great, lots of great blogs there around mindfulness and cognitive strategies to help with chronic pain. Okay. Let's begin with Dr. Sarah Lazar. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. It's great to have you here. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have a, a neuroscientist on who studies yoga and meditation. I think it's an area we need to do more research in uh, to discover mechanisms as well as you know the clinical applications for both of those treatments. But tell us how, as a neuroscientist, you became interested in studying yoga and meditation. Right. Well, basically, it's out of personal interest. So back when I was in graduate school, um, at that point, you know, this is 20 years ago now, I did not think very highly of yoga and meditation. And at that point, you know, you said yoga and meditation, and I equated that with like tinfoil hats and magic crystals and, you know, power pyramids and whatnot. So, you know, I, I was pretty skeptical about it. Um, then a friend and I decided to train for the Boston Marathon, and I overtrained, and I destroyed my knee and my lower back. So I went to see a physical therapist and they said I had to stop running and just stretch. And, you know, I didn't really like aerobics classes and thought of just stretching. I mean, I don't know, because I wanted to stay in shape, right? And so as I was leaving the physical therapist's office, I happened to notice an ad for a bigger yoga class that promised to promote strength and flexibility, uh, but also cardiovascular endurance. I thought, okay, this would be a great way to just stretch and stay in shape. And then maybe I could still run the marathon. So I went to that yoga class purely thinking it was a form of physical therapy. And, you know, the teachers say, okay, this poses this benefit for you. This poses that benefit for you. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here at stretch. 
But the amazing thing was after a couple of classes, I really started noticing that it had an impact on me. I was calmer. I was more relaxed. I was just handling things in a completely new way. Um, it was pretty, pretty powerful. And so actually, um, I tried to go back to running, but it still was painful anytime I ran. So I sort of gave up on running and just did yoga and I've been doing it ever since. Um, and then, you know, when I finished my PhD, I was just like, okay, I got to study this. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess during your PhD, did you know that you were going to start to venture into that area? Just not just the very end of my PhD. I was pretty much done. You know, I was almost finished with my PHD when this all happened. And so, you know, I thought about it as I can't really do this, but you know, it just, it worked out. So I got very lucky. Yeah. Interesting. Almost like a little career change at the last minute there. Oh yeah. Complete career change. <laughs> Um, so when we talk about mindfulness now, we, we talk a lot about the brain and pain on this podcast. When we talk about mindfulness, maybe first, what types of effects do we see that mindfulness has on the brain? Right. So we have done a lot with brain structure. And so we have shown both in long-term meditation practitioners and in novices that there are differences in brain structure. And so by that, what we mean is we took people who never, ever practiced meditation before. We randomized them to either go through meditation or go through just a weightless control. You know, so they just, we scanned them eight weeks apart, but we didn't, they didn't do anything in between those eight weeks. And what we saw is that the people who went through the meditation program had an actual increase in gray matter in their brain in certain brain regions compared to the controls who didn't go through the program. And so, and this is not... A lot of people are like, oh my God, <laughs> this is amazing. It's well known that, you know, if you train someone to do something new, their brain will change. So the fact that the brain is changing was not necessarily earth shattering, other than that most people thought that meditation, you're just sitting there, you're not doing anything, right? Yeah. Um, so there's sort of validation for them that, yeah, okay, meditation is actually something active. And then what we were interested in is where change, because uh, I think this important clues as to what's happening during meditation. And so the areas that we saw changing, one was the hippocampus, which is an area involved in learning and memory. One is a PCC, which has to do with self-reference and how this is relevant to me. And another region is down in the brainstem, and it's an area involved in releasing neurotransmitters. And we saw that the change in that region correlated with well-being, so people reported being happier if they, that region changed. And then the last region we found was the amygdala, so the amygdala got smaller. And amygdala is all about fight or flight and fear and, and stress. And so, again, as that got smaller, people reported less stress. Mm. So uh, these changes are consistent with the self-report of what people are uh, talking about, their, of how it impacting them. Yeah. I think the fact that the amygdala shrunk is so interesting. People actually talk about the amygdala as like the harm alarm, the alarm that turns on pain. Etching is obviously very involved in stress. So you saw that shrink, which I think is fascinating. And then... The learning aspect also, when we talk about learning and memory, because chronic pain oftentimes is spoken, is spoken as a, a learned phenomena, like the brain learns how to create pain and the more it repeats the patterns, the, the better it gets. But you saw that meditation targeted the learning aspects of the brain. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so it was for the, the hippocampus. And so it actually got bigger. And we know that with chronic stress, the hippocampus gets smaller. And so how that would impact pain is a good question. But again, I think the idea of the, the patterns, that's interesting. I didn't know that, but that I think is consistent with how we know or how we think mindfulness works with pain. Mm. And you mentioned the temporal parietal junction, which is kind of like just up here, kind of above your ear a little bit. Yes. Uh, it's also it, that part of the brain helps you kind of take perspective. Yes. And that was, you notice gray matter increase in there as well. 
Yes, exactly. And again, so that's, so again, perspective taking. So that's a big part of empathy and compassion. Mm-hmm. And like you said, seeing things from other points of view and, uh, you know, creativity as well. And so we think that, again, that could very well be about having people you know, thinking about things in new ways. Interesting. And it, it, when, when you're conducting studies, are you looking at a particular type of mindfulness intervention? Is it just MBSR? Are you looking at other, oftentimes when research is done to try to keep things uh, tight and neat, you pick just like eight sessions of a certain technique. Is there one that you study more than others? Right. We mostly do MBSR. Uh, we've done a couple. Uh, so MBSR was the original mindfulness program developed by John Kevinson. And so that's like basic generic mindfulness program out there. <laughs> um, and then there have been other ones developed for specifically for depression and then for anxiety and you know, eating disorders and addictions and you know, all sorts of different conditions. But most of our data, because most of our studies has been with healthy, normal people that are distressed. So mostly we use MBSR. We've done a few studies with anxiety disorders, and we actually did one study with pain um, and people with comorbid depression and pain, I should say. And some of that data has been, uh, the brain data has not yet been analyzed and published, but the behavioral data has been. So, you know, we demonstrated that, uh, you know, that it was indeed effective for people with with chronic pain. Mm. So mindfulness is effective for when you say effective, you know, we can start to break that down to what that really means effective. But I guess people want to know, does mindfulness really produce pain relief? Right, exactly. So the data we actually, I just, uh, we did a meta-analysis. So in terms of actual pain sensations, I say the data is mixed. Some studies find a, you know, modest decrease in reported pain. Others find no change whatsoever, but even the studies that find no change in reported pain find decreases in things like pain catastrophizing and pain, I forget the name, it's pain control. So basically the idea is how much is the pain controlling my life and how much is the pain impacting me? You know, how much do I avoid doing things to avoid the pain? And that seems to be where mindfulness it makes a really big impact, you know, very consistently. So it's more about the relationship to the pain. And that's very consistent with what we know or how we theorize mindfulness is working and how mindfulness is taught, which is the idea is because that's more about your thoughts and your thinking. And mindfulness is all about sort of seeing mental habits and getting a perspective on your mental habits and sort of stepping back from your mental habits. The analogy I like to make is that you know, you see your friend and you know all your friends' bad habits, right? We all know our friends' bad habits, but they don't see them, right? We're, we're blind to our own bad habits. And with mindfulness, what starts to happen is you start to step back and sort of start to see your actions and your thoughts, like from a third person. And this could be like the TPJ, you know, that perspective's taking place. And suddenly, you know, all your bad habits, you start seeing all your bad habits and all your, all your, your habits in general. Including the, oh, I can't go out because it's going to hurt my, you know, it's going to hurt too much. And you just see, oh, that's just a thought. And oh, that's, that's silly. And so just as you would say to your friend, hey, you know, that's, you don't need to think that, you know, that's not right. You see that for yourself and you realize that those thoughts are just, you know, you don't need to hold on to those thoughts anymore. Yeah. It's just so important. Yeah. You also study uh, yoga. Yes. And yoga yoga has a mindfulness component to it at times, depending on how you teach it. And then obviously it has a, a physical component to it. Yeah. Are you studying yoga as just a, a physical form of exercise or is it the more from a mindfulness perspective? 
Definitely more from the mindfulness perspective. And I should say MBSR actually includes both yoga and meditation. And again, it's a very slow, very gentle form of yoga. And then, yeah, the studies that we have done so far with yoga have always been with a a more slow, gentle form of yoga. Because again, um, you know, that emphasizes the mindful awareness. Because again, I think that's really important. You know, because lots of times, some of these power yoga, I don't think it's really yoga. I mean, there's definitely, you can have fast yoga that is mindful and, you know, really mind-body. But, you know, sometimes when I go to the gym, these teachers... I mean, it's just exercise. They're using yoga postures, but it's not yoga. <laughs> um, so I try to avoid the yoga, you know, the, the power yoga classes. I just stick with the slow, gentle stuff. That's usually a little bit more mindful. And is there a certain style of yoga that you have focused on in your research? For the most part, we use something called Kripalu, which uh, the word Kripalu means compassion and action. So again, it's very mindful. And they have something they call witness consciousness which is basically the same idea as mindfulness. This idea that there is this part of your mind that sort of observes in a detached way. And so that's, you know, that's very consistent with mindfulness. Right. So that, that kind of observer self is existing when you're meditating, but it's also existing when you're actually moving and doing, uh, doing yoga, for instance. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Cause it's not like, Oh, I need to get into this posture. It's like, okay, what am I actually feeling as I raise my arms over my head? You know, and, and you know, it's really keeping in the moment and sort of keeping an eye on, again, sort of stepping back and keeping an eye on everything, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah. have you, um, of course, I think there are people in, in two camps that would love to hear this. Have you looked at yoga versus meditation? A little bit. So um, <laughs> we have one study that's published, actually two studies that are published, that where we compared long-term meditation practitioners to long-term yoga practitioners. And these are people who mostly practice Kapala yoga versus people who mostly practice mindfulness meditation. And what we saw is that for the most part, things were the same. You know, there were some subtle differences, but mostly they were the same. We have a new study, though, which is not yet published, where we took novices and we randomized them either mindfulness or yoga. They look pretty different, actually. And so there's a great quote, which I love, which is that there are many paths up the mountain, but there's only one mountain. And the idea is that, you know, if you're going up a mountain, if you start on the north face, which is the south face, you know, at the bottom of the hill, things are going to look pretty different. The closer you get to the top, the more they look the same. And so we think the same is true. Because when you talk to you know, really advanced practitioners of the different traditions, you know, what they talk about is very similar. There's, again, there's some differences, but mostly they're the same about, about what enlightenment is and whatnot. There's a lot of overlap. So but again, but obviously yoga looks very different than meditation. So that's what we think is that, you know, there's going to be some differences at the lower levels, but then in the higher, you get the more similar. And you're talking about from the perspective of what you're seeing in the brain on like a functional yeah. MRI. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. But not, not looking at, let's say, quality of life factors or... Yeah, no, because those are pretty similar. So the study, you know, we actually have another one where we compared to different types of meditation. One was new mindfulness. The other one was a mantra-based, relaxation-based meditation. And even there, we saw some differences in the brain. And yeah, so both were good at reducing stress. Both reduced a lot of the symptoms and whatnot. Again, there was just stress, though. But in their brains, they look different. And there were some, there were some things that are different in terms of um, the questionnaires. Some of the questionnaires were different. Mm. So there are there's similarities and there's differences, I'd say. Mm. And again, like for sports analogy, it's sort of like you know, running versus swimming versus golf. <laughs> yeah, they all have general benefits, but they all are going to work different muscle groups. Yeah. 
So if there are many ways up the mountain, uh-huh. um, all to get to the same place, how long do I need to be climbing the mountain to, to uh, receive benefits? Right. That's So you can definitely get benefits even after a couple of classes. You know, really, truly, there's some people who, you know, and I see this sometimes in my classes, you know, the, for the studies that we do, because I go, I don't teach the classes, but, you know, I help set up and then talk to people at the beginning of the say, hey, welcome to the study. And then I go away and then I come back at the end. And, you know, at the beginning, everyone's all stressed out. And at the end of the first class, you know, they're just looking so relaxed and so happy. And so it's just like, so that just makes me happy to see that change. But people, you know, really do say that after a few weeks, they're really starting to notice an impact on their life. And then again, sort of like exercise, it's sort of, you know, the more you, the more you're going to benefit, you know, and if you really get into it, you're going to turn into like an Olympic, you know, like a monk is like an Olympic athlete of, of meditation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you get that, but I mean, certainly, you know, if you just practice every day for 20, 30, 40 minutes, you can get in you know, pretty good mental shape. Yeah. So, so it sounds like 20 minutes is the, the number you kind of hover around most. Yeah. 20 to 40. You know, sort of 20 would be the, it depends on the different traditions and different teachers, but generally speaking, 20 to 40 is what's generally recommended. Right. And that's, um, the science is backing up and saying, if you practice for about 20 minutes a day, that you'll see the benefits there. And I guess, will the benefits stick? Here's another question, which I've always concerned about. Do the benefits stay? Let's say I take an eight week MBSR training where I go, you know, to the clinic for two hours once a week and then at home I'm meditating for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Let's say when that ends, let's say I decide that well, I'm going to do meditation, I don't know, twice a week for 20 minutes only. Right. Do the benefits within that eight-week time stick or do I have to continue the exact same frequency right. duration for it to continue? Right. So we haven't, no one's really done that study well yet. Like no one's really looked at that carefully. But I can sort of tell you just anecdotally from my own experience, just talking to other people. So it's sort of like, you know, back in school, you know, you go and you learn math, right? And you learn, you know, so some things like two plus two, okay, everyone remembers that, you know, but once you get into the algebra and stuff like that, you stop doing, you st- in the class, you stop doing algebra, you kind of start remembering, but not kind, you know, completely, you know, if you go back to it, you can sort of, it takes a little while, but you, know, you get it back. Like there are some bits and pieces that, do stick with you. So for instance, like, yes, again, two plus two, here it is, you know, 40 years later, you remember two plus two, Um, even though you're not doing it all the time. And so I would say that there are some, some things, because again, like once you step back and you see your bad habit, you've seen it, right? And you can't unsee that. (laughs) If you keep practicing, you'll continue to see more and more and more of your bad habits and more and more subtleties of your mind and how your mind works. Um, and so if you stop practicing, you'll probably stop getting those, they're called insights, right? And sort of awarenesses of, oh, you know, and if you just practice, like you said, like twice a week for 20 minutes, you know, again, we don't know, probably you'll still get, you know, a little bit of benefit, but not as much. So again, like exercising, you know, if you exercise every day versus exercise once a week, yep. you know, so that's similar. It's almost like they use it or lose it phenomenon. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, but there are definitely some things that, I mean, even years later, you still know how to ride a bike, even if you haven't ridden a bike in 20 years. Yeah. So, you know, there are some things that are still there. When looking at your research going forward, what are the areas that you're going to start to explore that you'd like to explore in the mindfulness yoga realm that hasn't been kind of discovered or unearthed yet? Right. So one of the big questions, two of the things we're doing right now is, because most of the brain imaging studies have just been pre-post, you know, just eight weeks. And so to get out the question you just got at, so we're now doing a study where we're looking at people one year later, just try to get at, okay, so people who continue practicing versus people who stop. 
the other thing we're doing is we're looking at older people uh, because there's quite a bit of data that suggests that meditation helps preserve the brain and, uh, and the body with aging. And so we're looking to see, can we actually slow down aging, mm-hmm. you know, cognitive aging? So those are the two big things that we're doing right now. And then uh, just getting at sort of some of these other changes in the brain, sort of about trying to understand them a little bit more um, completely. So um, looking to see that hippocampus, like, you know, how is it impacting memory? How is it impacting emotion regulation? How is it impacting these different things that it does? You know, and trying to just you know, drill down a little deeper into some of these changes. Mm. The, the fact of looking at meditation on aging, mm-hmm. cognitive decline is so important right now. And I'm not sure... I'm not sure if there's a lab that's really just honing in on that one aspect of it, but it's really important because I think some of the matter changes that you've seen with pain, I'd be curious to see if there are similar changes that happen with the aging brain, so to speak. Exactly, yes. Well, we know the hippocampus definitely goes with age. And also the PCC, it can, that's with, with Alzheimer's disease. That's what, those two are the two main regions that goes with Alzheimer's. And so that would definitely be looking at dementia yet and Alzheimer's, but um, that's something we'd like to do in the future. But right now, we're just looking at healthy aging for the most part, because you know, we all get old, no matter what, we, we all get old. So that's of a widespread interest, obviously. So as a neuroscientist who studies yoga and meditation, can you share with us what your personal practice is? Sure. Yeah. No, so um, my practice is actually highly variable, I hate to admit it. I have never been one for a set routine. Um, so, you know, I aim for 40 minutes a day. Um you know, when I go to class, I go to a meditation class once a week and I go to yoga classes twice a week. Mm. Uh, and so those, and those are pretty set. And I always do those. Then during the rest of the week, I would say I practice anywhere from five to 40 minutes a day. And then there's no real pattern to it. You know, some days it's five minutes, some days it's 40 minutes. But I try to, you know, most days do at least five minutes. Um, you know, and then I try to do, you know, say 30 or 40, at least two or three times a week. Yeah, but there's definitely periods where I'm practicing way more than that, you know, in 30, 40 minutes all the time. So it's, it's you know, it averages out. Yeah, I mean, it's a great schedule. And the fact that there's variety um, is actually at times beneficial for the brain because you're giving a new input, new stimuli, new sensation, which helps the brain grow with that positive plasticity. Exactly, yeah. I think the main thing is just trying to make an effort to do something every day. Yeah. And some days it works out well and some days not so much. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You know, and one of the things that people do is they start to dive into the, you know, meditation yoga world is they'll go on retreats. Yes. Whether they're three days, five days, one week, two weeks, some of them are actually three months long. Yes. Have you done any research on some of the longer uh, retreats that's like for people and what happens, you know, obviously in the brain? Yeah, no, we have not, but other people have. Um, not with MRI, but with EEG, and they've definitely shown big changes in the brain, you know, which makes a lot of sense. And even just one day, there's a couple of published papers about that, about people who just even just one full day of meditation, you know, and it can have a big impact on brain function. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this work is so important. I think there's not a lot of, um, you know, money and emphasis going into, into this because obviously, unfortunately, in our world, a lot of money goes towards pharmaceutical. That's where the, a lot of the funding can go. But the funding for your studies, the, most of it focuses on like functional MRI funding. Is that correct? Correct. Well, it's what people, yeah, no, there's definitely some MRI, yes. But there's also just a lot, a lot of it's clinical outcome. So mindfulness for this disease, mindfulness for that disease. Yeah, it's also important why people support like the NIH because a lot of your funding comes through there. Yes. Um, which is important. 
Really good. Yeah, lots of movement and complementing yeah, Good thing to mention. Um, Sarah, it's been great chatting with you about mindfulness and, and yoga and the effects on the brain and neuroplasticity. Can you tell everyone how they can learn more about you? Sure. Uh, so I have a website and on my website, we have links to all of my papers. And uh, there's also some information about you know how to find resources. And so if you just Google my name and Harvard and Meditation, you should be able to find me no problem. And then also we have a Facebook page and we try to, we have a little bit of information on that, that you know, if something, a news article comes out that's interesting, we post it there. And then anytime we have a new article come out, we post it on Facebook. Hmm. And what's the name of the Facebook page? You know the name of the page? Uh, it's the Lazar Lab for Meditation Research. <laughs> Lazar Lab. For, <laughs> excellent. Okay. Yeah. So we'll link to the, the Lazar Lab for Meditation Research as, as the Facebook um, the website URL, in case you're all interested, interested, you can of course find it on the page. But I'm going to uh, spell it out for you, for you all right here. It's https colon um, forward slash fo- forward slash galler dot harvard dot edu forward slash sarah underscore lazar. Um, and of course, you can find that exact link will be on the website. So you can hop onto drjoetata.com forward slash podcast, and you can grab that. I want to thank Sarah for being with us and giving us a little up-to-date information on the neuroscience behind yoga and mindfulness. Super important for those with chronic pain and practitioners learning. Of course, this is important information. Make sure to share it out with your friends and family. Hop onto the website at drjotata.com. Make sure you sign up for the podcast so I can send you the latest update each week. And make sure you hit the like button so you can share this out with your friends and family on social media. I'm Dr. Joe Tata. It's been great chatting with Sarah today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast. For more information on this episode and access to links discussed, please visit drjotata.com and click on the podcast tab where you will find the blog post for this and all previous episodes and can sign up for Dr. Joe Tata's email list to receive the latest information on chronic pain. Also, make sure to stay connected on his Facebook page at Dr. Joe Tata. 